you for the word that you've set in him for today. Thank you that your word does not return to you void, but achieves that for which you purpose it. Um, and we just we pray for ourselves. We pray that um, our our minds would be open to what you have to say to us, and our our hearts, our very selves, Lord, that we would take um, what you have to say um, and treasure it. Amen. Brilliant. <clears throat> Thank you, James. The other thing James didn't mention, which is exciting a lot of us about number 279 Gloucester Road, is there's about 16 toilets, <laughs> which is like, you know, amazing. I've just said at the back, one of them's going to say for clergy only. Um, ooh, it's booing. Right. Can I have the, um, sorry, James, I, I've, uh, the first slide, the one with the, uh, there we go. Brilliant. Um, a number of years ago, I know you want to keep that. I know I'll keep it. Yeah, thank you. A number, a number of years ago, I um, I left the house on Christmas Eve, uh, about ten o'clock, to go to the um, to go to our Christmas Eve service, and it was we weren't meeting in here. We we're meeting on the Gloucester Road, and as I um, as I hit the bottom of my road, I just started weeping. I just started crying, uh, and I ended up kind of bawling my eyes out all the way, pretty much to kind of just shy of um, our Gloucester Road site, where I managed to kind of pull it all together. Um, and, and get through church. And I was overcome, I think I was just overcome by kind of um, total sadness. Um, and looking back, it was the end of a year in which I think pretty much since January, every, sing, every month something happened uh, that, that had these kind of two themes. Number one, it required a level of adrenaline for me to kind of get through. And the second thing, it was almost like a direct attack on uh, something that I uh, used to establish my sense of self-identity uh, and self-worth. Uh, so it would be an encounter with somebody who'd say, you know, this is going wrong, and this is why this is going wrong. And I'd sit there, and the lie I'd be telling in my head is, it's all my fault, it's going wrong. And then I'd sort of fix it, and then another month later, something else would happen. And it went on probably, I think there was about, looking back, there was nine sort of once every four or five weeks that these things happen. And the illustration in my head, I'm, I haven't done this for years, and I was never very good at it, but surfing, um, if, you, if you're trying to get, um, sometimes there's a wave that you, you need to go under, and you, have to, you push down on the board, and you go under the wave, and you pop back up again, and then you can, there could be another one just there, and you have to push down again and go under, and that takes a little bit of energy, and it just felt like for the whole year, every time I kind of popped up, there was something, there was a wave about to crash on me, and I had to push under it. Um, long story short, I, I ended up in front of a doctor, uh, and ended up um, being diagnosed as depressed, uh, um, which was kind of a shock to me because I'd always thought that was kind of like not what I'm like. You know, I'm kind of um, fairly steady. Um, so this was like, I'm not, this is, you know, um, uh, this is not the kind of thing that happens to me. Um, turns out it was. Um, and that then kind of it plays itself out from there. And it's reflecting back on that, that um, these moments in life come um, when everything kind of, kind of when everything goes wrong, but actually the, the, the thing in my, is, in my sense, this is why I kind of got this picture here, is, is that the road ahead suddenly becomes unclear. And maybe a sense of the certainties that lay behind aren't there anymore. And you just don't quite know what to do uh, or where to put your feet. Um, Post-pandemic... The more and more time I spend with people, um, and this is people generally in and outside of the life of faith, there is a whole load of that sense that we're trying to 
put everything back as it was pre-2020, and we're not quite sure if it works in the same way anymore. And then there's a whole load of people who are um, popping up with levels of anxiety and uncertainty, and then there's a whole load of people who are pushing down on where that is popping up in their lives. And if we follow Jesus, um, we should have a confidence that in those places, in those situations, that he knows what to do. This term, um, we've got a series um, called Home. Uh, actually, and we've got the whole year is called Home, but this term it's Lessons from the Exile. And our sense as we went into this term was actually the exile, the story of the people of God when they lost Jerusalem and they lost their home and they lost that sense of that certainty that they had. And they found themselves firstly in Babylon and then kind of back in Jerusalem, but it wasn't as it is. Was, there were lessons for us as followers of Jesus post the pandemic. Um, what does it look like when it feels like the storm is over, but actually the road ahead isn't as clear as it once was? Um, what do we do? And one of the big lessons um, for us, and this is, um, and, and for everybody of faith, is this theme of waiting. Um, it's a theme that emerges after the exile because the people of God are, are waiting for their Messiah to come. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that from their perspective, God goes silent. Hundreds of years, there's been loads of prophets, and suddenly God goes silent. And waiting is part of what it is to live the Christian life. So Advent is not about waiting for Christmas. It's about waiting for Jesus to come back. Uh, there was a man called um, Kuiper who was a theologian and the prime minister of the Netherlands all at the same time, which I think is quite cool. Uh, and he, he, in his theology, uh, he was totally convinced about the coming of the kingdom of God and about the role that the church played in the transformation of culture and society very convinced about that, Prime Minister of the Netherlands. But lying behind all of that, he said, is there's, that until Jesus comes again, it'll never quite be fully here. There will always be that element of mess. There will all be, always be that element of where do we put our feet next? And so that's for us in culture, but also sometimes it's for us in our own church life. And we find ourselves on a journey, waiting, not quite knowing sometimes how to put things back together, or where to go next. What the people of God did when they got back from exile is they, um, uh, they started compiling what we call the Old Testament in all sorts of ways and putting it together in ways that they hadn't put it before. And one of the things they did was um, they put together um, the book of Psalms. Um, and a key texts for them are Psalms 120 to 134. We call them the Songs of Ascents. Um, because that's what they were. They, part, they found these, um, these prayers that had been used, some of them by David, some of them whilst they were in exile, and some they were literally writing as they got back. And they said, there's something about these prayers that as we say them, um, help us navigate through where we are now. And if you know the story of the, Psalms, the Songs of Ascent, is that, is that not everybody lived in Jerusalem. And you, you, you would have to go to Jerusalem for festivals. So we know that Jesus did this. And when you left home and you traveled, not on your own, with other people up to Jerusalem for the festival, you sung these songs together on the road. And you declared what they said, what these prayers said to one another and over one another on the road. And they were designed to prepare your heart, to orientate you for Jerusalem, 
but also to kind of help navigate you through this place of pilgrimage, this time of waiting. And, and so I'm, I'm going to read uh, one of them to us all. And then um, there's three things I want us to, to learn about how we wait well um, that kind of flows out of these psalms and out of um, good theology. So I'm going to turn, if you've got a Bible or you've got an app, um, turn to Psalm 123. So 123, they think, was written uh, while Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall um, and is facing a time of opposition as he rebuilds the wall. And if you know anything about the story of Nehemiah, they've rebuilt the temple, and compared to the previous temple, it's pretty rubbish. They're having a go at building a wall, but Jerusalem is now a small, insignificant provincial capital where once it was a glorious, grand capital. And so the wall doesn't even look quite that good compared to what it was before. And all around them, people are saying, what are you up to? And so they write this psalm, and this ends up as one of the psalms that they would, Jesus would have sung as he went to Jerusalem. Psalm 123. I lift my eyes to you, to you who sits enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant and from the contempt of the proud. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, So the first thing um, I want uh, us to think about in terms of that waiting, or that kind of how do we um, put stuff together when the road ahead seems unclear, is, um, is this, is that actually we are invited to and we are called to practice our faith. We are called to practice our faith. Um, when God went silent in that gap between when the Old Testament closed and the New Testament opened, the people of God didn't stop practicing their faith. They didn't stop attending their festivals, and they didn't stop singing the Psalms. Um, waiting, as we understand it in the Christian life, is an active thing and not a passive thing. Hands up if you've caught a bus in Bristol in the last year or so. A few hands up. It's a kind of slightly dispiriting process, isn't it? Uh, They've now got apps where you can see roughly where the bus is. Um, But you get to the bus stop and you sit there and there's absolutely nothing you can do except just sit there and hope that the bus turns up. And a lot of us think that kind of this, this idea of waiting in the Christian life is that. That maybe if we just sit tight at some point... The dot matrix might turn out right, and God might show up. It's passive. Um, I'm going to look over this. Anybody got any exams coming up? Yeah, I got a couple of nods, a couple of glares. Um, There's a difference between waiting for your exams, teaching point for you all, um, and waiting for the bus. So um, so if if you've got an exam coming up or an event coming up, in terms of in the wait for that event, you work towards it, don't you guys? (laughs) Yes, you do. Um, 
you know, so there's a, a few of us went cycling. Um, a few of us went cycling in the Alps um, last summer, and we meant to go in 2020. So the wait for that was really rather long. Um, but but um, to various different degrees, I think we some of us were more active and some of us were passive in our waiting. Um, but actually, if we had been totally passive in our waiting, when we got to Lake Geneva and were faced with sort of 600 and something kilometers of cycling and all those hills, we wouldn't have been able to do it, would we? The event we were waiting for had come and we weren't ready for it. There's something about active waiting um, that is different to passive waiting. And so waiting in the Christian life is an active thing. Um, what it involves doing is it involves kind of sometimes showing up um, um, and, and saying the prayers um, and serving others um, and declaring the truths. So I can imagine, imagine you were a slightly grumpy Jewish person uh, living in around the time of Jesus and you kind of weren't sure, you know, you didn't like the Romans, you weren't kind of sure about all this, uh, you know, what, what's God up to, all this kind of stuff. And then, and then it was a festival and you had to go up to Jerusalem and you spent a number of days on the road and on the road, you know, you sung songs, people, you might not join in, you might just sit there with a grump on your face and, and a friend of yours looked and you went, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, all right. And then the next day, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? But that sense of immersing yourself in that, when you got to Jerusalem, I reckon something would have happened. I know that's been, um, I had a, a number of years ago, I went um, uh, to Buckfast Abbey um, for a week. And I was kind of, I just was, I, I was all right, but I was kind of like, you know, just, just kind of a bit flat, I would say, when I went to Buckfast Abbey. And I went to Buckfast Abbey and I went to all their services across the days that I was staying there. And on one level, it didn't feel very, you know, just, you went through it. You went through the prayers, you went through the liturgy. And then as the day, as the week went on, I just found something happening in my heart. And that when I got home, I knew that something had happened. And I was talking to um, a dear, dear friend of mine on Friday, who has had a number of stuff in their life that's been quite hard, um, serious illness in their family, and all these kind of things. And he was saying, the first time crisis hit me as an adult, um, I'd always been somebody who was a Christian, had prayed extemporary prayers. I could just sit down, read my Bible, and pray. And he said, and I suddenly found I couldn't do it. He said, I discovered this book. He said, it's called the Book of Common Prayer. So, and he said, and I just found that actually I couldn't say anything to God. I would just sit there and I wouldn't know what to do. And, and so what I started doing was I just started reading prayers that were written 400 years before. And sometimes when I read them, nothing happened. But I did that over the course of a couple of years and something happened. And I know as I was thinking about this point um, today that I know there are some of you out here who have been through stuff in your life and I have seen you turn up to church again and again, in the midst of all of the hardness, in the midst of, I've seen you come to services that you know you just didn't want to come to, um, and I've seen you do this. So I know this is not just my friend, or sometimes not just me, I know it's some of you guys here, that there is something about practicing our faith, it being active waiting, that does something. A very profound thing was said about the Book of Common Prayer. Somebody said that Thomas Cranmer wrote it so that you and I could understand the liturgy, the prayers of the Church of England. And actually, um, the truth was Cranmer wrote it so that we could participate in the prayers of the Church of England. So that's the first thing about waiting. It's active. And the second thing, so if you think about it, just, like, so it's just so you know, or I've got subtext, I lift my eyes up to you. That's an active thing who sits enthroned in heaven. Um, but it's also 
together. Verse 2, our eyes, plural, look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy and have mercy on us. And we don't wait alone. One of the easiest things to do when you face one of the situations where you feel all alone or where the road ahead seems uncertain is to withdraw. I know that would kind of be in my experience. But actually, that is the moment at which we need us. We need one another the most. And we need to do faith together. And if you are the person who is suffering, sometimes that can be really, really hard. Um, and so what we need is we need to be chased in love by those who care for us and those who love us and those who would walk through faith with us. So back to my miserable um, Jewish friend at the time of Jesus who doesn't want to go up to the festival. His neighbor needs to knock on the door and say, are you coming? Are you coming? We're in this together. God, um, the New Testament tells us, has drawn together a family of people. And, and family stick together no matter what. Family love each other even when they drive each other mad. Isn't that right, guys? Uh, some of my family are over there. Um, <laughs> Um, and family watch out for one another. They watch out for their backs. If you've ever played a team sport, uh, whether it be 11 or 15 players or whatever is on the pitch, not everybody gets onto the pitch and will, will play at the level you want to play. Sometimes people have a game that is so much better than their normal game, and sometimes people have a game that is just like not their normal standard. And the most amazing thing, um, I played hockey for a number of years, is, is when you've come off the pitch and you've known that you haven't played as well as you could, I used to play left back. And you know that the guy in front of you and to the right of you has had your back for the game because they've known that you've not been pitching at your normal level. They haven't judged you. They haven't balled you out. They've just been like, he's off it today, and we're going to help him. And that is what waiting looks like. It's active, and it's together. Who do you wait with? And who are you inviting into waiting with you? And... Um, one of the things that's not being talked about in the church in the West, uh, because we don't like doing honesty, is that a whole load of people of faith have struggled through the pandemic. And a whole load of people who are quite surprising have struggled with faith through the pandemic. And, and, and we need to, if that's us, we need to put our hand up and go, that's me. And if we know people in that category, um, we, we, need to, we need to kind of love bomb them in a, in a nice way. We need to... Um, and it might be that, you know, the, an invite straight to church on a Sunday morning is the wrong thing. It might be the right thing. But actually to find, to catch up with them, to find them, to love them, to pray for them. And um, we're in this together. The songs of a sense were sung by a people on the road going to the place where their God dwelt. And everybody got on the road. Those who were up for it, those who were kind of up for it, and those who were definitely on shore. So good waiting looks like being active, and it looks like doing it together. But crucially, um, I think this works if you've understood the gospel. So in, um, in the psalm, it says, I, I lift my eyes to you, to you who sits enthroned in heaven. Let's see if we can find the text. Um, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave took the hand of the, her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Now, it's very easy to read that wrong and go, oh, that's about me being put in my place. God's up there on his throne, and I am a slave. I'm the lowest of the low. And actually, that's not the case. What's happening in the text is there is a reminder of the responsibility of the master for the servant. 
So in a healthy relationship in the ancient Near East, um, the master had responsibilities to care for and for the well-being of the servant. And so what is happening in this psalm is instead of going, you're up there and you're boss and you can do whatever we like with you because we're your slave, it's leaning on this sense that actually you are, you are the good master who has covenanted, promised to care for us and to look after us. And we're leaning on that truth about you. And then it's, the, and then it's this till he shows us his mercy. Um, his mercy. Um, when I get the gospel, waiting becomes easier. And it's the mercy of God is what the gospel is all about. That actually all of us were born into the kingdom of sin and darkness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that no matter what we can do, we can't escape from it. But God in his love and mercy has come to us in Jesus. And he has freed us from that kingdom. And by taking upon himself on the cross the consequences of our sin. Your sin and my sin. He's taken it to the cross And he's paid the price that was ours. And because he's paid that price, we don't have to pay it. And when we say yes to him, we discover the freedom that is his of right. That's the gospel. But what tends to happen, and this is why I think we struggle with the waiting, is we tend to misunderstand it sometimes, or potentially even having started there, get it slightly wrong. So one of the traditional ways we do it is we fall into what's called a religious mindset. And the religious mindset is that God needs us to do stuff to keep him happy. And that we must turn up at church, we must say our prayers, we must do good works. And if we do all of that, one day we'll be able to say to God, look, actually, I am good enough. And even if we've said in our head we believe this, when we examine our lives, that might be how we live. Um, That makes waiting very difficult. Because actually, when life falls apart, when you walk around the corner to church and you start weeping, you could start saying to God, but hold on a second, I've been doing this, 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 and this. Therefore, transactionally, I should get this. I've forgotten his mercy, and I've started demanding from him what I think is mine of right because of what I have done. And if I find my heart in that place, waiting becomes really hard because waiting is, is, involves mystery and involves uncertainty. And I've said, no, 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 Lord, look at all of this certainty. Some people fall into that camp. I think in our culture, I think our culture doesn't fall into that camp because if it did, our church would be packed. <laughs> I think if I was going to kick our culture, it's a nice phrase, um, it would be, I think we fall the other end, which is I think we are consumers. That, um, I've talked about a book called The Triumph of the Modern Self by a guy called Carl Truman. And, and what we have done over there, we've put ourselves in charge and said, God, I've done all of this. Now forgive me. Over here... We uh, live in the West in a world where we are the consumers. Everything is about the self and about self-actualization and about how I am in myself. And so therefore... Oh no, the recording stopped. Yeah, so we have a memory, uh, a memory stick and it records the talks. It records all of the gathering actually. And um, we have no idea why, but the memory stick was full, which it shouldn't have been. And on it was loads of videos of ballroom dancing. Uh, <laughs> Glad it was ballroom dancing. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I was mid-flow, and then it just ended. And you, everybody thinks apparently we have to carry on. Yes, because it was a really good talk. Thank you, James. Um, so, and and we want to bring the end of that talk to you. Um, as succinctly as we can, given that Wayne, you had written out a talk diligently a few days in advance, and then decided twenty-four hours before that you were going to 
give a different talk without notes. That's challenging for you. Um, but you were previously to this, you were, you were talking about um, what our culture does. And you had talked about a, a book by a guy on the postmodern self. Yes. Yeah, so we've just done how the religious self yeah. put it, says, I'm in charge. Yeah. God, you owe me one. But actually, I don't think that's the Western problem. And what I was going to go on and say is that actually the irreligious way that we come before God is is we kind of we make ourselves the consumer. Yeah. Uh, so so we still put ourselves in charge. But instead of coming to God and saying we need we've done all these things, therefore you owe us one. We go, well, actually, you're a service provider. Are you going to give me good service? A bit yeah. like an internet service provider. The download speed yeah. isn't fast enough. I'm going to go somewhere else. And so we have this, and it flows out of this Western ideal that I am the most important person in the world. Uh, and if God is a God of love, he's going to give me a whole load of stuff and do stuff in my life that's going to validate that sense of the importance of self. And so when we find ourselves in those places where the where life falls apart um, and the things that we think matter aren't coming to pass, which would have been my story when I fell ill, we kind of have this default as as the consumer. And we say, well, God, what are you doing? The service you're providing is not good enough. And I think, I said that's why if if we had a religious mindset, church would be full. I think that's why post-pandemic, lots of churches are talking about people just not coming back. And it's because people have gone, well, actually God hasn't done for me what I think he should do for me. And so therefore, why should I bother showing up? Because the service I'm getting isn't good enough. And that's the point in which you started talking about mercy. So in the psalm, the the psalmists uh, the psalmist has written, but as the people are singing the song of ascent, their eyes are looking to the one who's enthroned in heaven. Yeah, uh, and uh, and they are looking to the one who has a relationship of care and protection over them. And what they ask for is mercy. And I think the only way that you can truly wait um, as a Christian, and the only way that you can truly move forward when the road ahead falls apart. Is, is is not if you have a religious mindset of God, I'm the most important. Yeah. Not if you have a consumer mindset of God, I'm the most important. But if you have the mercy mindset of God, that he has rescued us. And that our starting point is that actually what we need from God is mercy because we were made for a relationship with him. We walked away from that and brought sin into the world. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the, but, the gift, gift of God. but the gift of God in Christ Jesus is salvation. Mm. And so we know that actually what God has done in Jesus is he has brought mercy to us. He has come as one of us. He has taken our place in death, taken the consequence of our sin upon himself so that we could step into the life with God that was his and no longer ours. And, and, and so we could step into eternity. And when we get that and we get that eternity is waiting for us and we fix our eyes like Jesus fixed his eyes on that when the road just immediately ahead of us falls apart we don't fall apart and we are able to be active waiters and to wait with others um, and then the illustration I used. Yes, you, you moved into an illustration. So at this point, um, we're, those of us in the room are sitting there um, kind of feeling like this is coming into land. Wayne's holding everyone's attention. Thank you very much. Um, I think a few of us have kind of been on the verge of tears through most of the talk. Um, and then we get to this point. If So I, I borrowed this from a gentleman called Alistair Begg. If when somebody says, why are you a Christian? If your starting point 
if your answer begins with I, you've already got it wrong. I'm a Christian because I prayed this prayer. I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian country. I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I do good things. I'm a Christian because. But if your answer begins with he, Beg would say you're on the right track. And he says, one, he says so imagine the, the, sin, the sinner on the cross, the thief yeah. on the cross. And he dies and he appears at the pearly gates. Now, St. Peter isn't yet there to take up his role because yeah. he's still down on earth. And so there's an angel covering for him. And the angel isn't expecting anybody anytime soon because this is, you know, this is Good Friday. And this sinner, this thief, walks up to the gates and he goes, oh, why are you here? And the thief says, uh, I don't know. He says, well, and he says, hold on a second, let me get the manual. So he gets the manual out and he says, okay, I need to ask you a few questions. Um, uh, did you pray Did you pray the sinner's prayer? And the thief says, the sinner's what? He says, okay, uh, do you understand um, the concept of justification by faith? The sinner says, justification by what? He goes, um, do, you, do you go to church? And the thief says, well, what's church? And so the angel scratches his head and goes, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm just going to have to, St. Peter hasn't arrived yet, I'm going to have to go and get my supervisor. So he goes and gets the supervisor and gets this other angel back. And the other angel says, you know, so have you asked him the question about the sinner's prayer, about church? Yeah, yeah, no. Okay, I'll say that. And they start asking him questions about, you know, you know what scripture? <laughs> you know, then all this kind of stuff, you know, who is Jesus? <laughs> Uh, and then and then eventually exasperated one of the angels just says to the thief why are you here and the thief says i don't know but all i do know is that the man on the middle cross said i could come and that is the gospel the man on the middle cross said i could come and when we get that and we get that we have been saved by his love and by his by his death in our place and it's for eternity we begin to see this life differently mm. and when the road ahead of us crumbles we don't look at the road, we look at him. And when we look at him, we're able to wait. We're able to wait actively, and we're able to wait with and for others. Um, and this is the Christian life, this side of eternity. Thanks for listening. 